0: is our American stories, and our own Alex Cortez brings us a powerful story about a father and a son and their impact on each other. We begin with the father's story.
1: We begin with breaking news H. Wayne Hyzinga, the one time owner
2: of the Dolphins, Marlins, and Panthers, has died. He was the first person ever to own teams in three major sports leagues.
3: He's developed six. New York Stock Exchange companies.
2: The only person in history to have built three Fortune 1000 companies.
4: Blockbuster Video, AutoNation, and Waste Management.
2: He was as generous as he was wealthy.
5: More than 1,000 people fill in the Broward Center for the Performing Arts to remember the
2: billionaire businessman who left an indelible mark on South Florida. And one who, according to his son, Wayne Jr., began life far away from that big word, billionaire.
5: When my father proposed to my mother, he was broke. He was so poor, in fact, that he sold his old pickup truck to buy her engagement ring.
2: And Wayne's father was also broke. His construction business went under, and so teenage Wayne was sent out on the weekends to drive a truck and pump gas. Wayne went to college, dropped out, and joined the army. Here's Wayne.
1: Well, I had just gotten back from the army, and my father said, I'll take you for lunch. And we walked in there, and some fella yelled, Harry, which was my father's name. It was a fella that my father went to high school with, and he was in the garbage collection business in several different cities and states. And he had a business in Pompano Beach. We had three trucks in Pompano Beach. And so the question was what are you doing in town and he said well i'm down here trying to hire a new manager for my garbage collection business and so herman molder said to me uh what are you doing i said just got out of the army yesterday good he said you're my manager (laughs) i said i said no no that's the last thing i I wanted to do was be in the garbage collection business and uh, the next morning at four o'clock i was driving up to pompano trying to get the trucks out on the route and he said uh, just do this for three weeks three months later you know I'm on the phone to Herman saying hey how, how much longer is this going to last <laughs> and so uh, one night I'm home now I've kind of gotten fascinated by the business a little bit and I'm reading a newspaper ad and it says a refuse route for sale revenue five hundred dollars a month so I went and see this fellow by the name of Wilbur Porter I said Wilbur I want to buy your business but I don't have any money And then finally, Wilbur said, okay, okay, I'll sell you the business and I'll finance you. So I I drove the one truck in Fort Lauderdale.
5: My mom told me that Pop was a hard worker and that's what I saw all growing up. He'd get up early in the morning and drive around Fort Lauderdale, pick up garbage, come home at lunchtime, clean up. Definitely a lot of soap after picking up garbage and go out and sell new business.
1: See all the growth around here, and we happened to be there in the right time, and you know, it was really growing, and we got a lot of new customers, and uh, and pretty soon it was five trucks, ten trucks, fifteen
5: trucks. He went on to, to grow that company and, and combine it with a company my uncle was running up in Michigan and Chicago land area to create waste management. Our trucks used to have a lot of room for advertising, and he'd have up there we cater weddings. Tom said in the very beginning, even before this whole thing of political correctness came about, it used to say we cater Polish weddings. She convinced him even in the 60s that that wasn't really okay. A Dutchman from Chicago, a lot of Poles up there as well, and so we're all immigrants at some time.
2: True, (laughs) but what's up with all these Dutch immigrants called the Heisenkas and their familial obsession with garbage? It provokes a reaction.
5: The kids used to laugh at me when I was in elementary school. They'd say, well, my father's a policeman. or My father works at an auto parts store. My father's a garbage man.
2: But the Heisingas would have the last laugh. In
1: 1971, we took the company public.
2: And it went on to become the largest
5: waste hauler in the world.
1: If you're going to be an entrepreneur... It's not all textbook. I mean, it's gut feeling, it's intuition, it's, it's a feeling you have that you can, you can do this and make it happen. You know, I think you have to have a personality. It's hard for a nerd to make it these days, you know <laughs> what I mean? It's, it's a, you know. My friend John Melk and I worked at Waste Management together. We both retired about the same time. He called me in November of 86 and he said, boy, I got to tell you about a store. I just financed a young fella who opened a video store called Blockbuster. He said, Wayne, this is your kind of deal. I said, "Nah, video stores. You gotta be kidding. I did not own a VCR. I had never been to a video store. Uh, you know, never rented a video. They call me a visionary, but I tell you, you know, my friend John would call me every week and say, Wayne, you gotta see, you gotta look at this. You have to look at the story. you have to look at the store. So I thought, okay, okay, fine. So walked into Blockbuster, wow, this is something else, a big story, and wow, this, this is completely different. And so we uh, poured through a bunch of financials. They're all projections, because they only had one store, so I looked at all the projections they had. And we determined that uh, if those numbers were only half right, it was a heck of a business. We bought about 65% of the company. I learned from my waste management days. By this time, all of our guys... Many of them here today, they're all involved with with Blockbuster. And so we decided that we're going to set up eight regions around the United States, and each region was going to open their stores. And so we staffed each region with a marketing person, an operating person, a real estate person, a construction person, a regional vice president. And then we said, okay, fine, we're going to open 250 stores a year. And that was our goal. And so make a long story short, over the next six years we averaged opening a new Blockbuster store every 16 hours. We paid $32 million for that company, or that's what the market cap was we bought in and seven years later we sold it for $8.5 billion. I work through people, that's pretty much what we do. I don't try to do everything myself, I, uh, I try to delegate, hire the best people possible and uh, I think we've done that, They, they in turn have to hire the best people to run the businesses the most important thing is people and uh and if you you know if you have five good people working for you and they're each working on five deals then that's a lot of stuff happening
0: that's a lot of stuff happening the father-son story of wayne Heizinga senior and junior their story a classic american dream story here on our american stories more after these messages This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of the late Wayne Huizinga Sr. and his son, Junior. Senior is the only person in history to create three Fortune 500 companies and to own three professional sports teams at the very same time.
2: We've covered who Wayne Huizinga Sr. was as an entrepreneur. Now, we dive into who Wayne was as a man. Hearing one of his best friends and his CEO at AutoNation eulogize him at his funeral.
4: Good morning. I'm Mike Jackson, and I, like you, was a friend of Wayne Isaac. I, like you, had a deep affection for Wayne. Uh, I would even say. I love the guy and um, one evening in Ireland a guy named Wayne walks into an Irish pub. There's a nice bloke standing there next to him. Wayne says let me buy you a drink and he says my name's Wayne and John reaches out and says my name's John. Wayne goes that nice lady next to you is she with you I'll buy her a drink too. John goes yeah That's my mom, Beth. So, a few Guinnesses and black bushes later, Beth speaks up and says, Wayne, did you know my son can sing? Wayne goes, well, I just met him. Actually, I don't know that, but now that you mentioned it, now's a good time for a song. Looks at John and says, what do you got? John seizes the moment, opens his mouth. A hush falls over this Irish pub. As John seizes the moment.
5: Come to
2: me.
4: A round of applause breaks out, and Wayne says, drinks on me. Which, of course, makes every Irishman happy. So... Wayne then looks at John and says, so John, how many people have you sung in front of before? John looks around the pub and says, well, it looks like there's about 75 people here. Wayne says, John, we are going to America. And I got this little football stadium. And you can learn the words to the Star Spangled Banner, can't you? I'm going to have you sing in front of 65,000 people. Now, where's your calendar? Let's figure this out. And that is the genius of Wayne, right? Think about it. We've all walked into pubs. We've all walked into Irish pubs. What came out of it? I got a hangover the next day. Wayne, though, touched John and Gene's life and Beth, and he came to America, and he learned the words of the Star-Spangled Banner, and he sang it in front of 65,000 people and he became part of Wayne's life forever. So Wayne, no question, is one of the most exceptional human beings I've ever met in my life. His achievements are truly extraordinary. But what's most remarkable about Wayne, and to me his defining characteristics, he was a man of humility. He never forgot that he started working on a trash truck. He never forgot what it took to work all day to take care of your family. And Wayne, in his journey of life, every day, all day, he treated everyone equally. Every person he met, he had a kind word for a little twinkle of the eye, put the smile on that person's face that they remembered for the rest of the day. And Wayne did that all day long, whether he was in a good mood or a bad mood. It was also one of his secrets to his success, because people would talk to him. And he had a wit and a sense of humor that no matter how much you had to put into a given day, it was so much fun, you didn't care. The other interesting thing about Wayne, as kind as he was, Uh, He didn't suffer fools very well. Wayne told me one of the secrets to life. He says, Mike, listen, don't have any jerks in your life. Now, he didn't use the word jerks. He used something else, but I'm going to be polite today. And the stories of how Wayne handled those jerks he came across, um, I could keep you here the rest of the day. I might make some headlines, so I'm not going to do that. But I will tell you one story. Again, we're in an Irish pub. Wayne and I spent a lot of time in Irish pubs. One of our Irish golfing trips. And um, Dan Marino's with us. And we had all this dolphin paraphernalia. You know, Wayne loved the dolphins. He's just crazy about them. And uh, we had this football. And this Irish bloke comes up and says to Dan Marino, let's have a game of catch in the pub. So... Dan looks at Wayne. I says, okay, well, so. Red sea parts. Dan goes to one end, this other. And Dan tosses in the ball. The Irish guy whips that ball back. So the Irish guy says, you know, we play rugby over here. We, we are none of this American football. Dan tosses it up and whips it back. He says, you know, none of that sissy American football. Well, as soon as the word sissy... Came out of this Irishman's mouth. Wayne's head goes like this to Dan.
2: Communicating to Dan, are you going to do something about this Mr. Hall of Famer?
4: Dan's looks at him.
2: Saying back, oh yeah, if it's all right with you. Wayne goes. Nodding his head up and down in approval.
4: (laughs) With that... (laughs) I hear a sizzle go past my ear of a football going 125 miles an hour on a rope before the Irish bloke can move, it hits him right in the chest, he bowls over backwards, the pub breaks out in an applause and Wayne says, drinks on me. <laughs> Brings down the house. <laughs> I think it was one of the best passes that Dan ever threw.
2: And to close, Mike talked about Wayne's relationship with his bride, Marty.
4: The love of his life was Marty. Uh, They were great together, 40-plus years. And they had a wonderful way with each other, both very strong personalities. I think Marty was the only person I was ever afraid of in my life. (laughs) So very strong personalities. And um, whenever Wayne was getting a little bossy with Marty, she would go, I know, I'm labor, you're management, I get it, no problem. And then whenever Marty got a little carried away with something, he goes, Mike, I gave her an unlimited budget. She exceeded it. (laughs) (laughs) They had great fun together. I think when I really understood the depth of their love, was over their rescue dog that Marty brought home. Marty was always rescuing things. This little dog Scruffy. Now Scruffy was a very positive description of this little snake nasty dog that hated this little thing that looked uh, terrible. And uh, this uh, Scruffy hated everybody but Marty. So I'm with Wayne one day and he looks a little tired for Wayne, you know, no bubbly. I said, hey, Wayne, what's going on? He said, I can't sleep. Oh, what's going on? He says, Scruffy, every time I get up to go to the bathroom, bah, bah, bites me on the ankle, pulling on my pants. I try to go back to sleep. He jumps in the bed, keeps me up all night. It's terrible. I said, Wayne, what, what are you talking about? You're a billionaire. You're king of the house. Deal with Scruffy. you got to be kidding me. So... He pauses. He almost had a tear in his eye. He says, you know, Mike, Marty's got a heart of gold. I love her dearly. If she loves Scruffy, I love Scruffy.
2: And that was that. To go out this segment, we hear from the Irish singer John McWaney, who Wayne happened to sit next to in that pub in Ireland, and brought him the biggest audiences of his life. First to the 75 people who happened to be there right then in the pub, and next to 65,000 Americans in Dolphin Stadium. And John, despite his fear of flying, flew back to America for Wayne's funeral and there sang Danny Boy to honor his friend.
5: Oh, Danny Boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling. From land to land. And
0: when we come and back, more of the Heizenga story, here are now American
5: stories. The summer's gone, and all of the roses fall.
0: This is Our American Stories, and to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Everything's there. You can listen to it. You can stream it. And also sign up for our free newsletter. Once a week, we send out the very best each week of Our American Stories. Again, ouramericannetwork.org. And now we return to the father-son story of Wayne Huizenga Sr. and Jr., and we now get to Jr.'s story.
5: Unfortunately, you know, he was very, very driven to, to make a, a life, or fortunately, he was very driven to make a life for a uh, better life for my mom and, and for myself and for my brother Scott. But the unfortunate part was that he and my mother grew apart during that time when he was working so hard. I was five years old, and my mother decided that she was gonna divorce my father. She went to the pastor and she told the pastor, and he told her, Hey, listen. This is the Dutch Reformed Church, no divorce, you know, it's just not a, not a possibility. Many of you probably know, but for anybody that's not familiar, I'd like to say that, that you've got the, the Baptists over here and then the Dutch Reform were over over a little further to the right. You know? And she said, I'm very unhappy and I'm going to divorce my husband. And he told her at that time that she could no longer be a part of the church, really kind of kicked her out of the church. It hurt her very, very badly. At a time when she really needed her faith most, she was kind of disassociated from it. So anybody that's been harmed or hurt by someone from the church, you know what, that's not really God. He loves us all despite our shortcomings and so I'd like to apologize to anybody that's been hurt by someone with good intentions but through the church. Unfortunately as uh, dad became more and more successful and I became older, like most young people, most sons especially, I wanted to follow in my father's footsteps. I wanted to be just like dad. I wanted to have the influence that he had and be able to do things for people like he could. I wanted the the power that he had. I wanted the 1971 split window Riviera that he pulled up at the house with one day, you know, and everybody's, what is that? And, you know, the big boat tail and all. I, I got one of those, but uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, I wanted all the things that he had, and so I went on and as I grew, I, my mom would try to tell me about God, and I'd listen, but my mind was really, hey, I want to be like Pop. I went on to college, I got out of college, and uh, actually, while I was still in college, he came to see me. And they called up on the dorm phone, you know, no cell phones then. And, 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 hey, your dad's on the phone. And he, yeah, hey, he says, like, can I come down and see you? I said, sure, Pop, it'd be great to see you. Yeah, it'd be great, I'll see you. Next day, all right, and hung up the phone, and I'm thinking, well, it's too early for grades. You can't have seen those yet, so what? <laughs> What's he, what's he coming down for? All oh, it'll be fine. Don't, don't worry about it. And I remember we went and we sat on a bench over by the water, and he told me that he was retiring from waste management. I joked with my wife. I said, I had my midlife crisis early on, honey, because, I, like I said, I had worked for waste management all my life, and I knew one day that I was going to work at waste management. And uh, he looked at me and said, what's the matter? I said, well, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he said, well, you can still work at Waste. You know, we still know a lot of people there, son. And I, I looked at him and I said, you know what, Pop, but it wouldn't be the same because you're not there. And he paused for a second and then he said, you know, son, we weren't exactly going to work together. Uh, yeah, I was the CEO and you were, you know, you were going to be someplace else. And I was like, yeah, I understand that, but, but you were going to be there.
2: As it would turn out, Wayne did get to work with his dad. Wayne Sr. went on to found Blockbuster Video, and when Junior graduated college, he joined him there.
5: And he helped each of the kids buy some stock. Stock went up 3,000% in the matter of about three years. And I found myself in an interesting position. I married my childhood sweetheart. We met when we were 15. I love her very, very much. I had two children at the time. And to the world, they said, hey, Wayne Junior, you're successful. had the sports games, made all this money with Blockbuster Video through my father, married my childhood sweetheart, the best decision that I made, and had two wonderful children, but kind of empty still. And so this success, this money that I made through Wayne Sr.'s generosity almost ruined my life. Ruined your life? How so? Well, I went from being kind of a regular guy to all of a sudden I was a multimillionaire. I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know how to behave. And I almost left the rails. I said and did things that I regretted. My mom was watching, and she would pull me aside and say, son, you know, it's uh, wonderful, this money that you have now, because we were fairly poor when we were kids. But I'm worried about how you're going to ground your children. How you are going to teach them about what is real, about what they're supposed to be doing with their lives, about the value of money, about, about how they're supposed to live and respect people?
6: And I say, well, what do you expect, Mom? What do you you think that I should do? How should I
5: change my life? How do I fix this? And she would tell me, well, you need to return to the church. Well, wasn't really on my priority list. I'd tell Mom, well, you know, Mom, I'm working six days a week, which was true. And I'm tired. Sunday's really the only day that I get to sleep in. And what I didn't have the heart to tell her was, Mom, I've been out drinking and behaving foolishly. And the last place I want to be when I'm hungover is in church. It was the truth.
6: But when you get older like me, you'll
5: realize she already knew that. She just was such a loving mother. She wasn't going to call me out on my lie right in front of me. So my bride always says that God has a plan, that his timing is perfect. People kept talking to me about the church, and I kept finding excuses why I wasn't going to go. And one day, I got a call from a friend. He said, "Wayne Jr., how you doing?" Said, blah blah blah. And I said, "Yeah, what's going on, man?" He said, "I've got an opportunity to take a few friends and go on a fast attack nuclear submarine and sail from South Carolina to Fort Lauderdale. Are you interested?" I was like, "Dude, I'm a like, guy, aren't I? Of course, I'm interested." <laughs> When do we go? Tomorrow. It's a little soon, short notice, but not a problem. i will see if we can borrow Pop's plane, and we did, and that's where I met Captain Brad Fleetwood McDonald. And he was an incredible gentleman. He gave the four of us free reign of the submarine. We went and and sat in sonar and listened for vessels that might attack us, you know, freighters and fishing boats and whatnot, and and, uh, we had a wonderful time together. And I loved to fish and I found out that Captain Brad Fleetwood McDonald loved to fish as well. So I thought, well you took me on your boat that goes underwater, I'll take you on my boat that goes backwards in the water to catch big fish and we'll have fun. And we did. We started spending time together. Then every time that we would get together, Captain Brad would bring his Bible. And I asked him about it because when we weren't catching fish he was reading or we were playing cards and whatnot. I said, what's up with, with this? He said. This is the manual for life. Oh, all right, all right. When I was young, this is probably 18 or 19 years ago now, and I started asking questions. I thought, boy, I can learn from a guy like this. Anybody that can take 110 young men and put them on a submarine for six months at a time and spend weeks underwater with them and not have chaos, I, I can learn from a gentleman like this. So, I started asking him questions about how he led and how he resolved conflict and how he coached and whatnot. And every time I'd ask him a question, he'd turn in his Bible to a chapter and he'd read me some verses. And he'd explain to me what those verses meant and how he used that in his daily life. Wow, all right. He was never pushy, but just would take and would share with me. And after we had been spending time together for A year or two, I started getting very, very selective about who I took with me on the trips because they were special times. Kind of uh, bittersweet times though, because I recognized in Captain Brad that he was the man that I wanted to be. I had met a lot of incredible people through Wayne Senior, presidents and businessmen and sports figures, but none quite like Captain Brad. He was a sailor, but he didn't drink and swear like I did. And he, he had this peace about him and calm and, and, and that was just beyond anything that I had ever seen. And
0: when we come back, the final installment of the Heizenga story, senior and junior, or in Jr.'s story now in this turning point in his life, this mentor that comes into his life and will change his life forever. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, a classic American story here, a father-son story, Wayne Heizenga Sr. and Jr. Turn to the Heisinger story, and you know, when we last heard from Junior, well, he found a lot of emptiness in their family's worldly success—fortune 500 companies, sports teams, the works. That is, until he met a Navy captain named Captain Brad.
5: So one day fishing was particularly slow. I think God did that on purpose. And uh, and I asked him. I said, "Hey, Captain Brad." How do, I, how do I be more like you? What, what gives you these special qualities? And he looked at me and he smiled, kind of like, hey, I thought you'd never ask, kid, come on. And, uh, and he said, well, I have a personal relationship with God. I said, really? Tell, what, what, do you, what do you mean? He said, well, Junior, I believe that you have a hole in your heart. I said, I do? He said, no, 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 not like a physical hole. He said have you ever heard that you were created in God's image And I said I've, I've heard that but never quite understood it he said all right he said well I believe that God left a, a hole in your heart that could only be filled by him and he said let me put it this way he said have you heard of a black hole I said in space And he said yeah it's it's this void and and it consumes planets and, and everything else stars and whatnot get sucked into it it's got an incredible gravitational pull he said that is like the hole that you have in your heart. And he said, you've been trying to fill that hole in your heart with things all these years, you know, big house that you're building and cars and trips. And he said, don't get me wrong. I love the trips. I love going on the boat, but all those things, businesses that you've been trying to create or get involved with. He said, you've been trying to fill that hole in your heart with all those things. And I'm here to tell you that there's only one way to fill that hole. And that's with a personal relationship with God. Could it really be that simple? I asked friends if they went to church, and nobody I knew really went to church. I guess I shouldn't have been surprised the way that I was living my life. I began attending a church, and I was there on Sunday, and I brought all my friends, and and then after we left church, I'd go to our house, and we'd have beer and sit around the pool. So nothing had really changed. I I prayed, but was more asking God for things and didn't really have a relationship with them. Well, one day, a couple friends came and said, hey, Junior, you want to go to church with us? I said, sure. What time on Sunday? They said, no, no, we're going to go tonight. I said, but it's Wednesday night. Said, yeah, our church has, has church on Wednesday night, too. I said, all right, great, great. They said, we'll come by and pick you up. They picked me up, and they drove me to one of the big warehouse churches. And we went in, and it was a little bit uncomfortable. It was a new place for me. And I sat down and I looked and there was no hymnals or anything. I said, hey, how do we, do you guys sing here? They said, yeah, yeah, but it'll be up on these big screens. I said, oh, all right, great. They went ahead and then came out and then we sang songs that I'd never sang before. It was, was really neat. There's, you know, me and 3,500 of your closest friends in, in, in this big, big building here. And, and the, the pastor came out and he was incredible. And he spoke for like 45 minutes, almost an hour. And at the end... Uh, it was raining outside, really, really a big Florida thunderstorm, and you could hear the thunder inside the building. And then the pastor said, You know, if you were to pass away tonight in a car accident with all this weather and whatnot, you know, heaven forbid, he said, please drive carefully, but, but, but just say it was to happen. He said, Do you know for certain that you'd go to heaven? And he said, If you don't, He said, you could come forward tonight and you could pray a simple prayer and ask God to come and live in your heart. He said, well, if you don't know, why don't you come forward now? Well, people started standing up in this big church and walking towards the front. Other people around me were clapping and big smiles on their face. And I thought, man, they clap in this church. I said, you know, where I go to church, we never clap, even when the choir just kills it. You know, we're sitting there going, that was really good, I want to clap. But he just kind of sat there and smiled like... Maybe give him a little thumbs up. And that, that, was, that was about the extent of it. It was kind of an uncontrollable thing for me. I stood up out of my seat kind of uncontrollably, like there was a spring that shot me up. And, 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 I, and I reached up, and on my lip there was sweat, and there was sweat up on my brow. I'm like, what the heck is going on? And I heard this voice that I recognize very well now say, hey, Junior, sit down. Everybody's looking at you, man. But there was no way you could have got me back in that seat. I made my way to the aisle, and I walked forward toward the front of this church that I'd never been to before. A couple of my pals that took me walked up there with me, and the next thing you know, I've fallen to my knees at the front of this church, and I've started to cry. And I don't mean, gentlemen, man, cry. I mean, I'm five years old, I've fallen off my bike, my hands and knees are scraped up, but I think I'm going to die, cry, just bawling, and telling God that I was sorry and that if it was true that he wanted to have a personal relationship with me that I would pray this prayer and that I hoped that he would show me why I had been blessed with all the things that I had and why I was supposed to do with the rest of my life. I prayed that simple prayer, asked Jesus to come and live in my heart, he stood up and turned around to 3,000 people with tears running down my cheek and a full nose. Same time that I came to my faith, my mom got sick. She was 62. and Ended up passing away in our home from lung cancer. She had been a smoker until she was 61. And um, a month later, my grandfather passed. And shortly thereafter, my cousin, he committed suicide. And then shortly thereafter, we lost our, uh, our best friends. We were their godparents to their son, Dylan. And he passed away at age two from heart disease. And you see. That's where I realized what real, real, real wealth was. It's great having money here on earth, don't get me wrong, but bad things are going to happen, unfortunately. And God knew that the old Wayne Jr., I would have gotten on Dad's plate, I would have gotten on my fish boat somewhere in the world, and I'd gotten in the bottle. And I'd have missed the opportunity to be there for my mother that raised me. She raised my brother, Scott, and I. She worked two jobs every day to, to care for us. I would have missed that opportunity to be there with her, to go to chemotherapy with her, to be able to pray with her, to be able to sing hymns in the car with her. Trust me, a voice only a mother could love. It's true. My wife tells me that people move away from me in church. I'm like, no, they're just readjusting. They're moving away. Different story. Anyway, for my brother, when he said, you know, Junior, mom's dead. Passed away in her home. For my children, they go, Where's Grammy's? Well, guys, she died during the night. Don't worry, she's in heaven. And we'll have the opportunity to be with her again because it's not the end, because she loved Jesus and I know Jesus, and you guys are gonna know Jesus as well. For my dad, who's not big on compliments, and one day came to me and said, Do you think he can do Papa's eulogy? This was 30 days after my mother's passing. You did a pretty good job for doing your mother's ULG. Yeah, I got this power pop. Power no. that I don't understand, but power to be a different person.
2: A power that was different from his dad's worldly power. And a power that his dad didn't have as far as he knew, but that he wanted him to have as any good son would. And so he tried to talk to him.
5: It's, uh, it was scary for me, so don't think that you know that it shouldn't be scary, because it, it is, because you love them and you want their respect, but more than anything, success is knowing that your loved ones will join you in heaven. Um, again, God's circumstances. I had an opportunity to get involved with the Palau organization. I was introduced to Andrew Palau, Luis's son.
2: Luis, a Christian preacher, has been called the Billy Graham, of Africa.
5: And we had a, an opportunity, uh, they came and met with us, they're the folks that do the development, that raise the money to put on these wonderful festivals, and said, uh, would you consider, would Auto Nation consider being the um, one of the sponsors for our big festival we're going to have on Fort Lauderdale Beach? So I got the video, and I went, and I was going to show it to my pop over Christmas. We spent a week together, and, and, uh, and I never got up the courage to do it. And so when I was headed out, I said, Dad, I really meant for us to watch this together, but I'm a big chicken. Uh... Would you, you know, watch this? And a couple of weeks went by and I thought, well, he probably watched it. It must not be that we're supposed to do it. And one day he came in and he said, I watched that video. Do you really think that God could transform Fort Lauderdale, could transform South Florida, that it would be like I saw in the video? And I said, I really do with all my heart. And he said, well, then let's be a lead sponsor. I said, great. So AutoNation or he said, no, let's do it as a family. I was like, wow. So we had a little side stage that night and uh, the two nights of the festival and one night my pop came and Luis was on the stage presenting the gospel and I had my head bowed praying for the people and somebody took a picture of my pop with his head bowed there and uh, I thought probably just being respectful following everybody else.
2: Here's Wayne Jr. at his dad's funeral with the conclusion of this story and the question of whether at that festival was his dad among the 10,000 people there who prayed the simple prayer for the first time and gave their life to Christ.
5: It took me three years to get up the courage to ask him if he prayed that prayer and if he understood what that prayer meant. And if he met it, and he smiled at me, and he said, I totally understand. And I did pray that prayer. And my life has been changed. I had to choke back the tears. Tears of joy, because I knew that we're all going to leave this world one day. But I knew that when he did, or I did, because... No one's promised tomorrow that we would be together regardless for all of eternity. And that is a tremendous, tremendous blessing.
0: The father teaches the son, but the son in the end teaches the father and brings him to his father in heaven. This is Lee Habib, the Haizenga story, senior and junior, here on Our American Stories. is our American stories and it's graduation season and we wanted to highlight some commencement speeches that have been given over the years some great ones one really really bad one that's so bad it's funny yeah that's right and some of our best Denzel Washington Admiral McRaven's at the University of Texas where by the way he now runs the whole University of Texas system and that one turned into a book called Make Your Bed. And that's how it started off. If you want to do good in the world, well, start by making your bed. Robert De Niro's was classic, and he gave it at NYU. Steve Jobs at Stanford. That was quite a few years back, but we play it every year because I don't think it gets better than that. And Will Farrell's hilarious USC. <laughs> <laughs> hey, shut up, Chuck. That, by the way, is Chuck Berry. We love playing that, that little outtake and Jesse's always quick on the uptake on the outtake of Chuck Berry that's right and now we're going to go to Conan O'Brien's commencement speech from Dartmouth College in the year 2011 here he starts off complaining about the weather and wondering why he was chosen to come and speak at all
7: I've been living in Los Angeles for two years and I've never been this cold in my life I will pay anyone here $300 for Gore-Tex gloves, anybody. I'm serious, I have the cash. Before I begin, I must point out that behind me sits a highly admired President of the United States and decorated war hero, while I, a cable television talk show host, has been chosen to stand here and impart wisdom. I pray I never witness a more damning example of what is wrong with America today. Graduates, faculty, parents, relatives, undergraduates, and old people that just come to these things. Good morning and congratulations to the Dartmouth class of 2011. Today you have achieved something special. Something only 92% of Americans your age will ever know. A college diploma. That's right, with your college diploma, you now have a crushing advantage over 8% of the workforce. I'm talking about dropout losers like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, and Mark Zuckerberg. Incidentally, speaking of Mr. Zuckerberg, Only at Harvard would someone have to invent a massive social network just to talk with someone in the next room. My first job as your commencement speaker is to illustrate that life is not fair. For example, you have worked tirelessly for four years to earn the diploma you'll be receiving this weekend. That was great. And Dartmouth is giving me the same degree for interviewing the fourth lead in Twilight. Deal with it. Another example that life is not fair if it does rain, the powerful rich people on stage get the tent. Deal with it.
0: Conan goes on to talk about how thankful he is to be there.
7: Though some of you may see me as a celebrity, you should know that I once sat where you sit. Literally. Late last night, I snuck out here and sat in every seat. I did it to prove a point. I'm not bright, and I have a lot of free time. But this is a wonderful occasion, it's great to be here in New Hampshire where I am getting an honorary degree and all the legal fireworks I can fit in the trunk of my car. You know, New Hampshire is such a special place. When I arrived I took a deep breath of this crisp New England air and thought, wow, I'm in this state that's next to the state where Ben and Jerry's ice cream is made. But don't get me wrong, I take my task today very seriously. When I got the call two months ago to be your speaker, I decided to prepare with the same intensity many of you have devoted to an important term paper. So late last night, I began. I drank two cans of Red Bull, snorted some Adderall, played a few hours of Call of Duty and then opened my browser. I think Wikipedia put it best when they said Dartmouth College is a private Ivy League university in Hanover, New Hampshire, United States. Thank you and good luck.
0: Now, before Conan came to give his speech, he decided to do some research about the school. He also complains about the podium that he's using that is just one huge fake tree stump.
7: This college was named after the second Earl of Dartmouth, a good friend of the third Earl of UC Santa Cruz, and the Duke of the Barbizon School of Beauty. (laughs) Your school motto is Vox Clamantis in deserto, which means voice crying out in the wilderness. This is easily the most pathetic school motto I have ever heard. (laughs) Apparently it narrowly beat out silently weeping in thick shrub (laughs) and whimpering in moist sleeve without pants. Your school color is green. And this color was chosen by Frederick Mather in 1867 because, and this is true, I looked it up, quote, it was the only color that had not been taken already. (laughs) I cannot remember hearing anything so sad. Dartmouth, you have an inferiority complex and you should not. You have graduated more great fictitious Americans than any other college. Meredith Grey of Grey's Anatomy, (laughs) Pete Campbell from Mad Men, Michael Corleone from The Godfather. Now I know what you're going to say, Dartmouth. You're going to say, well, we've got Dr. Seuss. Well, guess what? We're all tired of hearing about Dr. Seuss. Face it, the man rhymed fufloozle with sasnoozle. In a literary community, that's called Cheating. Your insecurity is so great, Dartmouth, that you don't even think you deserve a real podium. I'm sorry, what the hell is this thing? It looks like you stole it from the set of Survivor Nova Scotia. Seriously, it looks like something a bear would use at an AA meeting. No, Dartmouth, you must stand tall, raise your heads high, and feel proud. Because if Harvard, Yale, and Princeton are your self-involved, vain, name-dropping older brothers. You are the cool, sexually confident, lacrosse-playing younger sibling who knows how to throw a party and looks good in a down vest.
0: And when we come back, more from Conan O'Brien's commencement speech at Dartmouth College in 2011. This is our American Stories, and we continue with Conan O'Brien's commencement speech at Dartmouth College in 2011. Here, Conan decides to make his speech more memorable. He suggests some changes.
7: You are a great school, and you deserve a historic commencement address. That's right. I want my message today to be forever remembered, because it changed the world. To do this, I must suggest groundbreaking policy. Winston Churchill gave his famous Iron Curtain speech at Westminster College in 1946. JFK outlined his nuclear disarmament policy at American University in 1963. Today, I would like to set forth my own policy here at Dartmouth. I call it the Conan Doctrine. Under the Conan Doctrine, all bachelor degrees will be upgraded to master's degrees. All master's degrees will be upgraded to PhDs. And all MBA students will be immediately transferred to a white collar prison. (laughs) Under the Conan Doctrine, Winter Carnival will become Winter Carnival and be moved to Rio. (laughs) Clothing will be optional, all expenses paid by the Alumni Association. Your nickname, the Big Green, will be changed to something more kick ass, like the Jade Blade the Seafoam Avenger, or simply Limezilla. The D-Plan and quarter system will finally be updated to the 164th system. Semesters will last three days. Students will be encouraged to take 48 semesters off. They must, however, be on campus during their sophomore 4th of July. And finally, under the Conan Doctrine, all commencement speakers who shamelessly pander with cheap inside references designed to get childish applause, will be forced to apologize to the greatest graduating class in the history of the world, Dartmouth class of 2011, rolls!
0: And of course, he has some advice for both graduates and parents.
7: Well, today, I'm not going to waste your time with empty cliches. Instead, I'm going to give you real practical advice that you will need to know if you're going to survive the next few years. First, adult acne lasts longer than you think. I almost canceled two days ago because I had a zit on my eye. (laughs) Guys, this is important. You cannot iron a shirt while wearing it. Here's another one. If you live on ramen noodles for too long, you lose all feelings in your hands and your stool becomes a white gel. And finally, wearing colorful Converse high tops beneath your graduation robe is a great way to tell your classmates that this is just the first of many horrible decisions you plan to make with the rest of your life. Of course, there are many parents here, and I have real advice for them as well. Parents, you should write this down. Many of your children, you haven't seen them in four years. Well, now you're about to see them every day when they come out of the basement to tell you the Wi-Fi isn't working. (laughs) If your child majored in fine arts or philosophy, you have good reason to be worried. The only place they are now really qualified to get a job is ancient Greece. (laughs) Good luck with that degree. The traffic today on East Wheelock is going to be murder, so once they start handing out diplomas, you should slip out in the middle of the Ks. And I have to tell you this, you will spend more money framing your child's diploma than they will earn in the next six months. It's tough out there, so be patient. The only people hiring right now are Panera Bread and Mexican drug cartels.
0: Although he expresses it through humor, he does have some important and helpful things to tell the class using his own failure As an example,
7: I came here today because believe it or not, I actually do have something real to tell you. Eleven years ago, I gave an address to a graduating class at Harvard. I have not spoken at a graduation since because I thought I had nothing left to say. But then, 2010 came. And now I'm here 3,000 miles from my home because I learned a hard but profound lesson last year and I have to share it with you. In 2000, I told graduates, don't be afraid to fail. Well now I'm here to tell you that though you should not fear failure, you should do your very best to avoid it. (laughs) Nietzsche famously said whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. What he failed to stress is that it almost kills you. (laughs) (laughs) Disappointment stings and for driven successful people like yourselves it is disorienting. What Nietzsche should have said is whatever doesn't kill you makes you watch a lot of Cartoon Network and drink mid-price Chardonnay at 11 in the morning. Now by definition, commencement speakers at an Ivy League college are considered successful, but a little over a year ago I experienced a profound and very public disappointment. I did not get what I wanted, and I left a system that had nurtured and helped define me for the better part of 17 years. I went from being in the center of the grid to not only off the grid, but underneath the coffee table that the grid sits on, lost in the shag carpeting that is underneath the coffee table supporting the grid. It was the making of a career disaster and a terrible analogy. <laughs> but then something spectacular happened. Fog-bound, with no compass and adrift, I started trying things. I grew a strange cinnamon beard. I dove into the world of social media. I started tweeting my comedy. I threw together a national tour. I played the guitar. I did stand-up. Wore a skin-tight blue leather suit recorded an album, made a documentary, and frightened my friends and family. (laughs) Ultimately, I abandoned all preconceived perceptions of my career path and stature and took a job on basic cable with a network most famous for showing reruns along with sitcoms created by a tall black man who dresses like an old black woman. (laughs) I did a lot of silly, unconventional, spontaneous, and seemingly irrational things. And guess what? With the exception of the blue leather suit, It was the most satisfying and fascinating year of my professional life. (laughs) To this day, I still don't understand exactly what happened. But I have never had more fun, been more challenged, and this is important, had more conviction about what I was doing. How could this be true? Well, it's simple. There are few things more liberating in this life than having your worst fear realized. I went to college with many people who prided themselves on knowing exactly who they were and exactly where they were going. At Harvard, five different guys in my class told me they would one day be president of the United States. Four of them were later killed in motel shootouts. The other ones briefly hosted Blue's Clues before dying senselessly in yet another motel shootout. Your path at 22 will not necessarily be your path at 32 or 42. One's dream is constantly evolving. Rising and falling, changing course.
0: And finally, while failure is difficult, it may be the very thing that brings you success.
7: The point is this. It is our failure to become our perceived ideal that ultimately defines us and makes us unique. It's not easy. But if you accept your misfortune and handle it right, your perceived failure can become a catalyst for profound reinvention. So at the age of 47, after 25 years of obsessively pursuing my dream, that dream changed. For decades in show business, the ultimate goal of every comedian was to host The Tonight Show. It was the Holy Grail. And like many people, I thought that achieving that goal would define me as successful. But that is not true. No specific job or career goal defines me, and it should not define you. In 2000, I told graduates to not be afraid to fail. And I still believe that. But today I tell you that whether you fear it or not, disappointment will come. The beauty is that through disappointment you can gain clarity and with clarity comes conviction and true originality. Many of you here today are getting your diploma at this Ivy League school because you have committed yourself to a dream and worked hard to achieve it. And there is no greater cliche in a commencement address than follow your dream. Well, I'm here to tell you that whatever you think your dream is now, it will probably change. And that's okay. Four years ago, many of you had a specific vision of what your college experience was going to be and who you were going to become. And I bet today most of you would admit that your time here was very different from what you imagined. Your roommates changed. Your major changed. But through the good, and especially the bad, the person you are now is someone you could never have conjured in the fall of 2007. I've told you many things today. Most of it foolish, but some of it true. I'd like to end my address by breaking a taboo and quoting myself from 17 months ago. (laughs) At the end of my final program with NBC, just before signing off, I said, work hard, be kind, and amazing things will happen. Today, receiving this honor and speaking to the Dartmouth class of 2011 from behind a tree trunk, I have never believed that more. Thank you very much And congratulations
0: And there you have it Conan O'Brien's address This is Lee Habib This is Our American Stories Commencement month All month long Month of May Much of month of June We'll be playing the best The worst Some from famous folks A couple from just High school kids Who hit it out of the park And one college professor Whose speech was just so terrible Jesse's gonna have to add The rim shots And this will be one of the few times we'll actually be laughing at somebody on the show. Because, well, you just have to. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and our next story, well, it's about a crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. It all went down in the city of Benton Harbor, Michigan, in 2006. Andrew Collins was a narcotics officer. Jamel McGee was the brand new father of a beautiful baby boy. Let's go to what we'll call a split screen of these two men on how that day went down starting with Jamel.
6: February 8th, 2006 was the day that forever changed my life.
3: February 8th, 2006, really just another day for me.
6: All I wanted to do was go to the store and get some milk for my son.
3: All I wanted on that day was another conviction.
6: So I caught a ride from some guys that I knew that probably would be up to no good.
3: I had caught a guy with some crack. He knew a guy with some more crack, so we made a phone call.
6: So we get to the store, and this guy asked me to use the phone. At the time, I didn't think anything of it, so I gave him my phone.
3: So I get to the store, and I see the vehicle, just like I was told. One guy in the vehicle, and another guy comes out of the store. I'm not sure if he has something to do with it, but I'm going to make sure he has something to do with it.
6: So I'm coming out the store, and this guy's approaching me, talking about he's a cop. Where's the dope? I'm like, what dope? I don't have any dope.
3: I ain't got no dope. It ain't my dope. How many times have I heard this before? That's what everybody says. So I had him lock him up.
6: How could I be going to jail for some drugs that isn't mine? How is this possible?
3: Trial? He's going to take it to trial the way that I wrote that report? He's going to take it to trial? I would have wasted my time.
6: Well, I wasn't about to plead guilty to something that I know I didn't do.
3: So I told my story. And I got my conviction. And Jamel McGee was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison.
0: Wrongly accused, wrongly convicted, and wrongly imprisoned, Jamel was sentenced to federal prison, as we just heard, for 10 years for dealing drugs, a crime he didn't commit. Here's Jamel on what he was feeling after he heard the prison doors close
6: behind him. Um, I felt like I had lost everything, there was nothing else that mattered. At this point, so my attitude was, I don't care. So that was my goal for whenever I got home, was to find him and hurt him.
0: Jamel continued to battle with his demons.
6: So <clears throat> after battling with these these thoughts, I'm getting headaches trying to block it out, okay? Because I don't want to hear them. I'm trying to put something else in my head to get these thoughts out of my head. And I quickly realized that every situation, I had a choice before it even happened. I had a choice, but I chose the more convenient, easy way every time, which led me to foster care, juvenile, the links, the boys' homes, the prisons, the jails. My decisions led me there. So I'm like, you know what, God, it's your way. I'm tired of being in my way. I'm tired of this. My way hasn't worked all these years. So I need something different. I got a son. I want to see him. I want to be able to raise him. I want to be a part of his life. So I got to do something different with mine. So I get back to my cell and I prayed before I went to sleep. And I was like, you know what, God, I want to wake up tomorrow as if I'm at home. So I wanna live every day after this as if I'm at home. So I got up that morning, my first thing to do was speak to somebody, which was very hard for me to do. And I came out and I was just like, all right, hey. First person I saw, hey, how you doing? They looking at me like, this dude is crazy, who is this? <laughs> like, but I didn't care at that point what nobody thought. Cause I said I was gonna go through with this. I'm going, to, I'm going to adapt this change into my life. I'm going to do something different.
0: Here's Jamel and what happened shortly after his heart changed.
6: I go to work this one morning, and the people were calling me as soon as I got to work. So I go to the counselor's office, and he was like, the fax machine beeped, and he handed me the paper, and it was a letter from the judge saying my conviction was overturned, and I had to leave the premises immediately. So if y'all didn't catch that, We can try all we want to. It just don't work that way. It just won't work. God has the say-so. He has the ultimate plan. He did that. He, Me letting that that anger, that frustration go, God opened the door for me to go.
0: Jamel served four years of his 10-year sentence. But why the early release? Well, here's Andrew Collins, that narcotics officer we heard from earlier, who falsified the evidence that led to Jamel's imprisonment. He shares with us what happened to him exactly one year before Jamel was set free.
3: So February of 2008, I get caught with crack heroin and marijuana in my office. And in one day, my life crumbled. All the money that I was making, legally and and illegally, gone. Friends that I had built, friends who I thought would be there for a lifetime. Nobody knows a police officer like a police officer. Y'all are my boys, gone. Because they were worried about their careers. Rightly so. My family having to see my wife's face when I was trying to explain to her that I just lost my job. And in a day, it was gone. So I went on a three-day journey. Day one got caught. Day two thought about suicide. There's no way I can get out of this. Day three, went and saw a pastor because on day two, my wife came home from work and saw that I was depressed and said, you need to go talk to that pastor that you've been going to. So I called that pastor up and I said, I got to talk to you. He said, yeah, you do. I've seen the news. So I sit down with him and I tell him, I I, I confessed everything. It felt so good to get it out of me to finally admit what I had done wrong. And he listened patiently and he said, boy, you're in trouble. (laughs) I remember thinking like, you, sir, are a terrible counselor. (laughs) Like, I know I'm in trouble. What do I do now? And he said, where are you at with Jesus? So we knelt down there in his office and he prayed because I felt like if I talked to God, he'd strike me dead right there. I still couldn't wrap my mind around grace. We said, amen, I was bawling. And I said, what do I do next, man? I'm a man. There's like a list. There's gotta be a list of things I can do. Give me a list and I'll check off the boxes. He said, read your Bible. That's it. Get to know your Lord. I was like, I don't know if you ever read that thing, Pastor, but it's kind of of boring. He's like, no, man, God did something in you today. He gave me a, a Bible that was a little easier to read for me from what I grew up in, and I started reading. I was blown away at all the little bombs that were going off in my soul about Jesus dealing with people that were just as jacked up or even worse than me. And the longer I was away from police work, the less I felt bad I got caught, and the more I felt bad for what I had done. So I went to the FBI, and I said, look, I want to right my wrongs. So I sat down and they put a, a stack of uh, reports in front of me and they said, we need you to look through all these reports and we need, to te- we need you to tell us which ones are bad. And I said, honestly, out of these 200 cases, it'd be easier to highlight the ones that are good. My corruption ran deep. And I started working it out one case at a time, one case at a time, one case at a time. And one of those cases was Jamel McGee. And I opened it up and I said, that's a bad case. It's a bad case.
0: It's a bad case. And this is a heck of a story. I couldn't wrap my mind around grace, this detective said. Read your Bible, get to know your Lord, his pastor said. Both of these men on a spiritual journey, both born in very different circumstances, one side of the law and the other. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story about grace, about love, about God, and so much more. A crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. Jamel's story, Andrew's story, here on Our American Stories. is our American stories we return to our story about a crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. And when we left off, Andrew Collins had come clean, given his life to Christ, and he lived happily ever after, right? Well, not exactly. January '09 Officer Collins pled guilty and got a three-year prison sentence. and in February of '09, Jamel was set free. a switch. but the story does not stop there
3: 2010 August I get out so I reach out to a pastor of a local church up there and he says we're having this thing in August of 11 called hoops hip-hop and hot dogs h3 so I said I want to be a part of that so I'm standing in Broadway Park like okay where are the people that I need to be reconciled with bring them lord
0: bring them lord Benton Harbor is a small town by the way maybe a little too small here's Jamel on what happened that day In August 2011.
6: I got out um, I got to meet my son for the first time um, and he wanted to go to this park it was he seen a lot of people standing out there so I'm like all right come on let's go walking down the sidewalk I'm like I thought I seen Andrew in up under the pavilion I'm like no that can't be him not in Broadway Park and he turned around and I'm like yeah that's him in my mind, the first thing that popped up was, get him, get him. Now he's here, he's in front of you. All that, that I was feeling in the prison was back on my shoulders. So I go over there, beeline stuck on my hands. I said, hey, you remember me? And he said, yeah, and when he said it, I squeezed him. And in my mind, it was, Two things, it was myself again telling me to hit him. Hit him, what are you waiting on? You're taking too long, hit him. Then God was like, hey, (laughs) God was like, hey, I got this. Get out of my way, I got this. Step out of my way, let me avenge this for you. I got this, I can do far more than you ever can. So I'm like, hmm, hit him, (laughs) hit him. And my son was right there and I was just like, just explain to my son why I missed out on these years of his life, because I'm having a hard time doing it. And I, I let him go and I walked away. And each step I walked away, I felt lighter. I felt better. The closer I got to the curve, I began to think, man, that's over with. I'm going to that to God where it was supposed to be. I can't do nothing about it anyway. Forget it. I'll never see him again anyway.
0: What are the chances that they never saw each other again? What a scene, by the way, in a movie, huh? And by the way, as the mainstream media covered this incredible story, they left God out of it. And by the way, this is one of the things we will talk about on this show. You don't have to be a Christian to love the show, and you can be an atheist and love the show. But messing with who people are by removing parts of their lives is just despicable. And the God story here is central to the story. Andrew Collins picks up the story by telling us how he picked up his own life after the time he spent in prison.
3: So I start working for this place called the Mosaic CCDA, Christian Community Development Association, Cafe Mosaic, if you all have ever been there, downtown Benton Harbor, great place to go get a coffee. So I'm working there as the cafe manager. There's another part of the program called Jobs for Life, where people from the community, maybe they've got felonies on their record, maybe they've never had a job before, and they need a little bit of hand up. They don't need a hand out, they need a hand up, because they want to do something with their life. They go through Jobs for Life, they graduate Jobs for Life, and then they either get absorbed into one of our social enterprises, or they went out and got jobs with uh, a community people that we had made uh, contact with. Everybody in Jobs for Life, every student, ended up with a mentor. Anybody putting two and two together yet? <laughs> one day, Miss Princella comes down, cause she runs Jobs for Life. She says, hey, there's this guy in my class called Zuki. Do you know Zuki? I wanna introduce you guys to my, my friend Zuki. Uh, I said, no, I know the street name. I've heard it, but I don't think I know him personally. Don't think we ever met. Would you be his mentor? God has laid it on my heart that you should be his mentor. (laughs) God's funny, right? (laughs) So I said, you know my story, Miss P. You know what I've done in this city. I don't know if I've affected his family. Why don't you go ask him uh, what he thinks about it? So Jamel, in two minutes or less, what did that conversation sound like?
6: Yeah, it was like um, she came over and was, I was sitting in class. Everybody had a mentor and she was like, yeah, we finally got your mentor. She was like, yeah, God has laid it on my heart for you two guys to be mentor, mentee. And um, I don't know if you guys had any history together, but um, yeah, I think you guys should be mentored. I'm like, OK, get on with it. Who is it? And she's like, Andrew Collins. And I'm like, no, no way. There's no way I'm doing that.
0: Jamel wasn't finished.
6: She was like, okay, fine, we'll get you somebody else. And I'm like, wait a minute, Ms. P. That was my decision. Let me pray on that real fast. Because I don't want no more of my decisions to affect my life. This was my decision. So I want it to be God's decision. So I prayed, and I opened my eyes, and there was a book on my desk, and there was two figures on a um, mountain that was written in words. And it was one pulling the other one up. I was like, all right, God, you got it. It's evident this is the path you want me to take. I'm going to take it.
0: All right, God, you got it. And by the way, this is why so many of us have prayer lives. And it's not just Christians. It's Jews. It's Muslims. Because Sometimes we get in the way of the right decision. Our own egos, our own pride. Men particularly, women too, pride. The thing that gets in the way almost all the time. And that's what was getting in the way for Jamel. And by the way, when he said, that was my decision, let me pray on that real fast. How you could have left that out of this story, which, by the way, look up this story all over the media, CBS, ABC, you name it, it was covered. And this was left out, this prayer. God, I don't know how you do that. Again, I just don't know how you do that with good conscience. So these two guys, well, they're going to be together. Here's Andrew on meeting the guy who he would be mentoring, a guy who had only been referred to as Zookie.
3: So we sit down. I said, hey, uh, I used to be a police officer in city of Benton Harbor. I did some awful things. If I've ever harmed you or your family, can you let me know? I'd like to apologize for it. And he's smiling at me the whole time. I'm like, what is this dude smile at This ain't funny. I'm trying to be serious. And I said, so once I got done with my little spiel, I said, look, man, what's so funny? And he just shook his head. He said, man, we already had this talk. I said, we did. He said, yeah, Broadway Park. And I was instantly flashed back to that moment in the park. And I was like, oh, shoot. (laughs) And I just went to apologize. And dude, I am so sorry. I felt like God gave me a second chance. I'm so sorry. He said, I know. And he was like offended. I know. I said, dude, there's got to be something I can do. He's like, no, no, no. It's over. It's over. You were sorry then, and I trusted that. And I know you are now. You don't have to say it anymore. It's forgiven. It's done. I was like, dude, can we, can we do this mentor thing? He said, I think God wants us to. I think God set this up. I said, man, this is, this is blowing my mind, dude. Like four minutes ago, I'm making chocolate chip cookies. Can, can, and now this, like this is, this, can we pray? <laughs> He's like, let's pray. So we, we, we bowed our heads right there and we prayed that God would bless this friendship, that God would make uh, basically beauty for ashes, and we prayed that and he got up we said amen he got up and walked out cuz he had an appointment to get to and i went in the back and cried like a child because i felt forgiven <laughs> and then i was we were meeting every week and i was like yo bro we we need an employee in the cafe and you need a job uh are you uh, do you need a job he's like yeah i need a job you know i need a job i said well how about this cuz what if what if i hire you or what if we hire you and and you be and w- are you a good worker cuz if i've got to write you up w- Things are already tense enough, you know, like, uh. (laughs) ah. And he did that. He just smiled at me. This dude smiled. It was like, it breaks down all board. He's like, no, man, no, I got you, I got you. Mm -hmm. And he started working. He was the best worker I had ever seen. I worked so hard. I'd never seen somebody work so hard in that cafe. So every day I say, thank you, Jamel. Thank you so much for for putting your all into this. And this is amazing. Thank you. Do you want to hit me? (laughs) He'd be like, what? I'd be like, I just want to check. I just want to make sure, because I don't want to be at the cash register someday and then just get your big old. I want to make sure I know it's coming if it's coming. Yeah. And he's like, no, bro, no, we're good.
0: And it's so real. It's so real. It's so authentic. What a beautiful story about forgiveness, brokenness, and true reconciliation by two guys who should be hardened, bitter enemies. Jamel wrote the book about his story entitled Convicted, a Crooked Cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship, and that he was able to say to this guy, it's over, it's done. Think about that in your own lives. If you could say those words to bitterness, you'd held on to. And again, this is the power of God in people's lives. I think God wants us to. I think God set this up. Let's make beauty from ashes. Well let's all make beauty from ashes If this story can teach us one thing It's possible And so we're so happy To have brought you Andrew's story Jamel's story This story of a little Benton Harbor, Michigan It could be happening all over this country folks And if the media would only report the source Of so much of this reconciliation Not the fake reconciliation They talk about in the news This is the real thing And something tells me God's behind a lot of it Their stories, here on Our American Stories.